Welcome back to the Border Mail Sport Podcast. I'm Steve Turvitt and today we're joined by someone who has, without question, left an indelible mark on the fabric of our netball scene. A state league player in Melbourne, she was a pivotal figure in the inception of Ovens and Murray Netball and won the Tony Wilson medal three times in four years. She coached four different clubs, essentially building two of them from scratch, and later became the first netballer ever to be inducted into the league's Hall of Fame. But life filled with sporting highs hasn't been without its personal challenges, so Lindy Berger-Singleton, I reckon we should jump straight into it. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. Tell us where you are at the moment and how 2021 has treated you and the family. Well, currently I'm living permanently on the Gold Coast, so um, which is a blessing because we've managed to uh, avoid the lockdowns in Melbourne just by chance, not by not by choice. We just we retired two years ago, just before all the COVID stuff started. So we've been travelling in our caravan. So we've landed back here on the Gold Coast, and this is where we were always going to live full time. But yeah, here we are. Lindy, what if anything? Do you miss about being involved in RM Netball? Oh gosh, I miss it so much. I loved I loved Saturday mornings. I loved waking up um, majority of the time in Melbourne and driving up the highway and knowing you're gonna see all your mates, you know, the people around the club, the diehards that do everything behind the scene, you know, from masseuse to goal umpires and you know, scorers. I always had a good relation with every relationship with everyone. Um, I just miss, and then I'd get to see family as well. So I just miss that whole family community feel. You know, even when I stopped playing Evans and Murray, I lived in Melbourne then. Well, my husband and I would go um, to the local footy games, but there was no netball attached. So it was sort of kind of boring. I mean, I love my footy, but I really do miss the netball. And the standard in the Ovens and Murray now is just absolutely amazing. When I go back and watch games, I'm blown away by the standard, that's for sure. Your parents were from Tasmania, weren't they? But you were born in Myrtleford. Tell me a bit about growing up there and the role that sport played in your childhood. Yeah, yeah, mum and dad were from Tassie and then um, sort of football led mum and dad up to Myrtleford. So uh, we... Yeah, we were all born in Myrtleford and um, such a small, close-knit community, very, very athletic, sporting kind of community, you know, not much else to do really. So, you know, everyone played tennis, netball, basketball, swimming. There was so much sport on offer, athletics. And, um, you know, mum and dad were really good and allowed us to try, um, you know, each uh, a few different sports until we found our niche. So that was kind of them because <laughs> I can tell you now they're running five children in five different directions. Um, so we were very blessed to have parents like that that gave up their time. And we lived out on a farm for quite a few years. So it was hectic for mum running us around, but she did it and, and we have so much gratitude for that. Was netball a sport that came very easily to you? Uh, yeah, I loved netball and it did come quite natural to me. My sister was a very good netballer, my older sister. Um, she was also a very, very good basketballer. So she kind of basketball was more her, um, came natural to her. So she sort of went down the basketball field. I went down the netball and I loved it. it yeah, like you said, it was just natural for me and I felt very comfortable, you know, and uh, all the skills came quite naturally to me. So, 
yeah, goes to show that, you know, the reason why I ran with it, I just loved it. You moved away from the area when you were a little bit older. What took you down to Melbourne? Uh, yeah, I was actually engaged to Robbie Hickmott at the time. He was playing for Wangaratta Rovers and um, we he got invited to or drafted, as they say now, to go and play with Essendon. So we packed up and moved to Melbourne and that's that was really um, what got me to Melbourne. Um, uh, then Neil and Jan Danaher were the first couple that I met and they tucked me under their wing and um, she introduced me to the State League netball. We, we were playing domestic netball, but she felt that I should have had a crack at, you know, the State League netball. So um, she introduced me to some um, clubs down there and I tried out and got in and, and never looked back. I, I loved it and I'm so grateful to Jan Danaher for, you know, what she introduced me to. Yeah, tell me a bit about... Jan and Neil and how much did it help having people like that in your corner and helping you settle in a new city? Yeah, I've always said being involved in sporting communities um, allows you to settle into a community a lot quicker and um, Neil used to babysit my two older children at the time while Jan and I went off and played netball. So, you know, yeah, it was so kind of him but he was he was a very generous man and, and a lovely gentleman. Um, I got on very well with them and um, still stay in contact with them today. Unfortunately, things aren't going well for Neil, but he's fighting as best he can and doing a great job. So where did you play most of your netball in Melbourne around that time and, and how much did the opportunities down there help to improve your game? Uh, yeah, we, tra- we played mainly at the State Netball uh, Centre. Um, which was upgraded eventually, thank God, because it was just a tin shed there for a while. <laughs> um, so we then got some nice um, rebound flooring and stuff, which was good. Um, yeah, it really did um, put me on my path. Um, I did climb up the ladder pretty quickly. I had clubs, um, you know, wanting me to come across to them. I, I felt that, um, yeah, I was. I, I realised then that I was, naturally gifted but I think what held me back was I was late into the netball scene in Melbourne so I didn't move to Melbourne until I was 25 so you know a lot of girls have come up through the ranks and if you know what sporting politics can be like <laughs> even though I got invited to a lot of um, um, trials for uh, national teams I never made the final cut um, and I believe it, a lot of it was politics but you know anyway it's turned me into the person that I am and the coach that I am. I went off and thought, well, if I can't play it, I'll I'll, I'll teach it and, and share my knowledge with all the kids around Victoria. And speaking of coaching, I think I'm right in saying you spent some time with Kevin Sheedy as well down there. What was he like and were there things about the way that he spoke or the way that he coached which resonated with you and, and you picked up on and were able to use down the track? Yeah, Kevin Sheedy and I were great mates. Um I would probably catch up with him once a week and we'd just have these little chats about life and, you know, because he was dealing with Rob. And anyway, yeah, he he really intrigued me with the way he coached. And I used to always try and um, pluck his mind with, um, you know, how, why did he coach the way that he did? And he always said to me, Lindy, just look outside the box and um, refer things from the outside world that, can be used to um, 
for the girls to understand what happens on a netball court. So it's that analogy, you know what I mean, of um, something that happens in life is what can happen on a court, that quick decision, quick, you know, decision-making. So I used to, I took that on board and I used to do some quirky stuff like Kevin used to do to the boys. (laughs) And um, because back then you were allowed to watch all the footy training sessions so I used to go up and watch some of his stuff and what he used to get the boys to do. And, and then I took that on board and it really helped. It really made me connect with the girls um, really well because I wasn't just your stock standard, you know, let's do these drills, you know, this week and those drills next week. I just would um, roll up at training and I would just go with the vibe of the, of the night, you know, I'd take on the weather on board or just the girls' moods as to how I coached. I mean, obviously, I'd have my training session mapped out for the night, but if I felt that, you know, that vibe was not what I wanted for that session, I would just change it up spur of the moment. Uh, there was one moment, I think I told you, there where it was a shitty night, the girls, the weather was, you know, it was rainy, it was cold, the girls were dropping balls, it was a, it was just a terrible session, and you could feel everyone's... Um, um, what do you call it? My vibe was just dropping. So I said, right, I put the balls down, come with me. So we all went around. I opened up my car door and I put on a song and everyone had to stand around the car, linked arms and just sing this song and sway side to side. And it was, A, getting them to shift their focus that, you know, let's not dwell on the session we just had. Um, So shift your focus then, you know, engage in this song, you know, let out your emotions, sing it loud, sing it soft, you know, clap your hands, whatever you felt like you wanted to do. And, you know, it was really interesting when I looked around the circle to see some of the girls' looks on their faces. Some were really embracing it and loving it and some were a bit tentative because, you know, it was different for them. But, you know, I think everyone did embrace the way that I coached and and kind of understood why I did some of the things that I did. Do you remember what song it was? Yes, it was um, Shannon Knoll. Um, gosh, someone else asked me this. I've got a car, big black shiny car. I should I should know the name of it. Anyway, it was the hit, one of the, you know, top songs at the time. And, um, yeah, it just was, it was the CD I was playing at the time back in those days. It was CDs. <laughs> and... Um, Spotify back then, <laughs> but uh, I just popped it in. I knew I loved it, and I knew everyone else would have loved it and, and you know engaged with it. So um, it was good. It was, and all the football boys were over on the oval training, and here's us standing around my little car, all linking arms, swaying and singing and yahooing, and they've all thought, oh gosh, what Lind- what's Lindy got them doing now? But <laughs> but you know, it was good. It really, really was good. It was fulfilling to see that I could get girls to. Not be so um, full on and serious about their netball because it doesn't pay the bills. So you know, let's have some fun. You know, yeah, we're going to have some shitty days and some bad games, but let's just move on and enjoy life. You know, enjoy netball, enjoy the community. Netball became part of the OM in '93. Before we talk about your own involvement at club level, how significant was that decision to extend what had been up until then exclusively a football league for 100 years? And what was it like being part of that netball competition right at the start? Yeah, well, it had been talked about for quite some time and unfortunately you had your 
older generation or hierarchy that just were not a fan of the thought of that. Um, but thanks to some people that continually pushed and pushed and pushed it, like Tony Wilson and a few others, uh, Paula Carey, um, you know, they were just instrumental in the way they went about, um, you know, really for, not forcing but um, insisting that it would be probably one of the best things that O&M could do. And we look look at it now and now we've got the AFLW as well. So it's kind of amazing that it just, I felt that it just made the O&M family complete because it created a more of a family feel because you've got not just the family coming to watch the boys play footy, but you could also, you know, carry your chairs over the netball court, watch a bit of netball and bring your chairs back and watch some football. So it was a really good day out and it's, and it's gone to show that it's been the best thing financially as well. You know, it brings more people in the, through the gates. And, um, oh, yeah, I was just very, very honoured that when um, Sandra Piazza from Myrtleford rang me to see if I would travel up each weekend and start the Myrtleford team off and um, loved every minute of it. What was the reaction at the time? What did people think about netball being included? I think there was a lot of people... I kind of believe there was more people excited about it than than not. Um, you know, there was a lot of work that went in those first few years because not not all the clubs had courts at their ground. So for a few years, we had to go and play away from the football at a you know like a netball courts, community netball courts, and then you would come back to watch the football. So it was a little bit. Uh, segregated at the start but you could feel that building that once I think they gave every club two years or three years to have to have court one court built at the club at their ground so it gave the clubs you know an incentive to really if we want this to really work and you know all the girls and families all chipped in and did what they had to do to get a court at the ground and and look at it now. Some some grounds have got two courts and, and a warm up court. You know, it's just amazing where it's got to now. So being brought in to coach your hometown club, Myrtleford, how did you find it? Oh, it was fantastic. You know, I had been gone from Myrtleford for quite a few years, and it was so nice coming back. And I still love going back to Myrtleford now. But to go back and share what I'd learnt, even though I didn't get to fulfil my dream of playing National League. It's so good to come back, share my knowledge, my experience with all the young girls who, by the way, Murderford were very, um, we had a very naturally athletic sporting kind of community. So it was, we were very blessed, really. But just to polish off their skills and their belief in, you know, what we're what we're doing and, and the standard of Arms and Mario was was okay back then, but you know you still had to be the best to to get that that premiership. So it was you know just teaching them the fitness side of things and polishing up on the skill level and um, working on their belief. You know, so I loved it. I really really loved it. How did you get the best out of players? Um, how did I get the best out of players? Good question. I used to. Um, um, each individual player I would meet with personally. I wanted to know, I, I got them to, I fill out a form and then I'd go through the form with them and I wanted to know them on a personal level, not on just a netball, like coach player level. 
Um, you know, I wanted to tap into their lives a little bit if, if they allowed me to. Um, yeah, and then I would just monitor each player uh, on training days and game days and I got to learn what player, how each player reacted to the way I coached. So if I coached too hard on certain players, they would pull back, whereas some athletes love to be pushed. So you had to monitor, and Kevin Sheedy always said that, be mindful of you cannot coach one way anymore. You have to be very versatile and you have to know your players inside out and what they're capable of. So those players that would pull away when you yelled and, you know, growled at them, you then had to, you know, make sure you reaffirm to them that, what they were doing was okay, you know, and really pep them up. Um, and the other players, yeah, they didn't need much pepping up. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I loved it. It was, And still to this day I love learning, even when I go to the gym, learning about different um, body types and strength and, you know, stamina and flexibility and it's very interesting. What kind of things would you have had on that form and, and why was it so important for you to really get to know the players on that next level, that personal level in terms of where they were at physically and mentally? Um, obviously the main questions were um, how many siblings in their family, um, their strengths, what they thought their strengths and their weaknesses were. That was a big question because usually, I don't know, 80% of the time once you talked through those, what they thought were their strengths and weaknesses really weren't, you know, it was just what they perceived. Um and until you discuss, discuss it in great detail with them um, and get them in a more positive mindset, that changed their whole outlook. I used to like to know whether mum and dad were still married, just little things like that that might show me they have some resentment there, you know, parent, parents splitting up, um, just those kind of questions really, you know, and obviously it was all confidential. But um, but it just really helped me understand that person, not not a not as a player, but understand them as a person, and then you could work on them as a player um, and know how to push them physically and mentally. I'd even go as far as asking, and look, a few people listening to this might think, oh God, but you know, I'd like to know when their um, monthly cycle was and and how they. I got them to rate on a scale how they felt they were the week leading up, the week during it and maybe the week after because that can really help me understand their mood, their mood swings, their energy levels. So it can get kind of technical but it's very interesting information for a coach to have because, you know, from one week to the next uh, an athlete can change in their mood and in their energy and, you know, you, I'm expecting this out of that person and then when you look at your information go, oh, hang on a minute, she might be low on iron or, you know, energy that week. So, um, yeah, it was and it was good rapport. I think the girls appreciated that I, you know, that I took an interest in their health and well-being, not just we're not just there to win premierships. Uh, and, and to this day I still communicate with a lot of players just you know about life and uh, health and fitness and stuff so that's lovely. I've read a really good article recently about how GB hockey monitors the periods of its players and in my ignorance it was something that I'd never thought about but how much might that affect your performance as a player? Yeah well see a lot of people 
I'm very blessed. My my cycle was very normal. Well, defined normal, but I could I'd just get a slight backache leading up to it. Um, but you know, two, three to four days, and I'd be done, and that's it. But gosh, you know, I know people that would be buckled over in pain leading up to it. Um, you know, migraines. It's really, really cruel, and, and unless you're in tune with your body, sometimes you just roll with it rather than trying to work on things that might help you, you know, holistically, whatever path you want to go down. But um, oh, it, it can really affect players because if you're, if you're in bed the day before your game buckled over with pain and you can't sleep very well, you're going to be sleep-deprived for a start, you know, and then if you've still got niggly pains or you've mask them with some painkillers just to get through it's you know it can be cruel to some players but at least if I knew that then I could manage the team a bit better and maybe sit that girl out or play her for a quarter or see how she's going and then take her off give her a break and then put her back on you know just I don't believe in pushing girls for four quarters if they're not up to it it's just not fair on the girl and on the team. Within a squad of players you presumably have a whole mix of personalities, introverts, extroverts, how would you tailor your approach according to who you were dealing with? Yeah, oh, very interesting, that's for sure. But I had a good way of um, getting the introverts to step out of their shells without them really knowing. So what I would do when I got to a club was I would make a roster system and obviously I'd put the I put a couple of extroverts out there first <laughs> on the list, but then I would list all the introverts, so to speak. And all they had to do was each training night, you had your role. You had to rock up to training. You had to deliver the first 15 minutes of the warm up. You had to describe each, you know, exercise, whatever you were putting the girls through. You had to look, you know, look them in the eye. You had to take 15 minutes, was all I was asking. And you can make it fun. So it kind of got these introverts to step out and go, oh, well, I've got to do it. I'm rostered on to do it. So, And once they saw a few other girls do it, like because I don't believe in the coach being the only one that stands at the front. You know, you need other input. You need other voices. You need a bit of variety. So these these introverts, yeah, they were, by the end of the year, had their personalities were just so different. You know, they were, um, you know, rocking up to the game day and, um, you know, just being forthcoming and saying hello and, Lindy, is there anything you want me to do? And, you know, like it's just amazing how you can tweak someone's personality type without even them knowing. If we sidestep away from the netball court for a minute, there were challenges that you faced in your own personal life, having gone through a marriage breakdown prior to the inception of the O&M. Can you tell us what that was like going through that and how it impacted you? Yeah, um, that was actually my second marriage to Steve, by the way. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but again, it um, yeah, it, it really did uh, make me hit rock bottom, I suppose you could say. Uh, he got up and moved back to Perth, and I understood why. You know, there was, and I I could understand that the marriage was over, but what I couldn't get my head around was the fact that. We'd had a child together and she was very, very challenging to say the least. <laughs> um, and I was more resentful that he'd left me with this this challenging child because I'd had two children to my previous marriage and they were the kind of normal run-of-the-mill kids. 
But this little soul, she was put on this earth to test me, that's for sure. And um, I believe that she's what started me on my spiritual journey because I couldn't manage her. She was just so defiant and um, she's just a, an old soul in a little young body, I suppose. Anyway, I booked her into a child psychologist <laughs> and they spent the first three sessions on me <laughs> and I thought, hang on, I'm paying you good money to fix my child. <laughs> but <laughs> I understood why they did it because they needed to um, find out where I was at with it all, with with the marriage, with Tori, with, you know, my parenting style. Um, and then they moved on to help Tori. But it was, you know, it really did teach me that you cannot parent every child the same. You need to, again, tap into that child and see this is what I kind of brought into my coaching as well. Um, tap into that child and, and, and know what makes them tick. Um, and she had to be, um, what's the word? Um, you know, when she did something naughty and she wouldn't listen and she, you'd have to take her to her room, um, she, you'd have to leave her there and tell her that until she listens to what mummy's trying to tell her, then she can come out of her room. Um, then when she... Did had a little hissy fit and she'd come out and apologise and then you'd have to say thank you for listening to mummy's words, now go and play nicely. You'd have to reassure her all the time that she was a good girl, thank you for listening to mum. You know, I kind of think, gosh, my other kids didn't need this much reassuring. They just knew they were naughty and they'd get, you know, they'd cop, cop the consequences of being naughty but they kind of understood it but she was so different and little things where, you know, you yell at your child because they're being naughty and she'd look you in the eye and say, oh, mummy, you just hurt my heart. You know, and a three-year-old saying those kind of things was really out there, I thought. Um, so she was very in touch with her emotions but didn't know how to express them or, or well, I suppose she did to a degree, but she didn't understand what was going on inside. So, um yeah, very, very interesting times and it got to the point where I thought, right, I'm not going to play netball again. I'd hit rock bottom and thanks to Jodie House who used to ring me every day because I said I would coach Wodonga at this stage. She used to ring me every day and check in and say, this isn't a netball call. This is just We're just checking in to see how you're going. You need anything down the street? Because um, I used to go down the street and people would say, how are you going, Mindy? And I'd couldn't lie, I couldn't say I feel shit. You know, I didn't I wasn't that type of person. I didn't want to dump my stuff on other people and I didn't want to lie. So I'd send the kids down the street to do the shopping, the older two. Um but it got to the point where I'm all I'm a quite a resilient type of girl and I, I do hit rock bottom. I have hit rock bottom in my life a few times, but I'm very good at bouncing back. So I'm I don't know if that's blessed, but um you know, I see the good in everything. Even though it's bad at the time, you think about it, you reflect on it, and then you move forward and, and start, you know, concentrating on your future. And I bounce back pretty quick. And next thing you know, I've dusted off the runners and <laughs> rang Jody House and said, I think I want to come back now. <laughs> I think I'm ready to coach now. So they were very patient with me for about three months that I, I didn't go to Nepal and I didn't step foot inside a gym or a supermarket. Just needed that time. That feeling of of hitting rock bottom. Can you can you describe that? Is it a feeling of actually I, I need some help, or this is just some a place that I've never been to before? Um, 
felt that I needed help, um, I think because I'd hit rock bottom before, I'm, I just knew that I needed time. Um, I just needed to not see anyone. I just, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it was the spiritual journey that they were saying, you know, just back off from everything, slow down, you know, appreciate what you've got, spend some time with your challenging daughter. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and, you know, I'd go to the psychologist once a week and they'd give me things to do at home and books to read and I was really engaged in a lot of books. It was it was. It was quite a, um, what's the word, empowering time really because even though you're feeling down and out, I was doing a lot of self-development, I suppose you could say, that I'm not a bad person. You know, these things happen in life. Um, yes, I've got a challenging child but it's not the end of the world. Um, you know, grow together, grow with her together and, and which we've done and we're very close you know, I, I look back and I think, wow, those three months that I spent in isolation basically where I would not step outside the house, I just, my head, head was in books, I was reading, I was just chilling. You know, family was important at the time, family would drop in. Um, yeah, just didn't drink any alcohol. It was just, I suppose I was numb. I suppose you could say I was, I was numb. My family were a bit worried about me but... I knew that I just needed to do that, go through that time and and reflect and, and know that things are going to get better. So it can't get any worse. So, you know, I've got a roof over my head, food, food on the table, so Lindy, be blessed. And so, yeah, it was really good. I, I look back now and I think, wow, you know, I've come a long, long way and I love now projecting my health and happiness to people I meet and, you know, the girls I walk the dogs with every afternoon, they go, oh, God, Lindy, you know everyone on the Gold Coast and you only live here three months. <laughs> I'm a friendly person. I put out that vibe, you know, and I love hearing people's stories and, um, yeah, it's kind of uplifting for me. So. And you mentioned Jodie would phone you uh, fairly regularly checking in. The fact you had that netball community of people around you and that extra support network how significant do you think that was oh gosh you know I can't thank Jodie enough because I I mean look, I'm sitting here saying that I needed the time but just to have that phone call that regular phone call with someone that I hadn't had a, I mean I'd had a lot to do with it through netball but she wasn't family related just really genuinely concerned um and then um, you know, like we talk about mental health these days, but um, back then it wasn't a thing, so you, it wasn't talked about. It was just you were just depressed, or you just had a marriage breakup, so you just do what you got to do. But now I, I love that it's a thing, and people are talking about it. Like Tori's an ambassador; she's putting it out there. She's been through her mental health issues as well through her sport. But um, yeah, no, I. Jody, I can't thank her enough because it, it's really – I did say in my Hall of Fame speech that there were three families that in life and one's – the first family is the one you're born into, the second family is the one you marry into and then the third family is the one you make during your life journey. And that's why, you know, I feel for people that aren't um, in, uh, engaged with sporting community because – or any community – you know, I just feel that they are your second family. You know, you've 
got your immediate family, but if you can be involved in a, you know, sports club or a, it's just a family away from family. And I could travel anywhere in Victoria and know that I could pop into someone's place and they'd help me out or, you know, give me a bed for the night or, and that's a bloody good feeling when you, when you feel that safe and secure and don't feel so alone. Do you know what I'm kind of saying? Yeah, I just feel like people go, oh, Linda, you just get up and go and you're here and you're there. And I said, yeah, because I've got such a huge network of friends not and not just netball friends. I've got my gym friends. I've got um, my dog walking friends, you know. Um, you know, I've got my family friends. I've got such a wide, diverse network of friends and I love that. I love that you can, you know, you don't have to spend your whole time with this one network. You can branch out and have other, you know, I've got my um, spiritual friends and, and it's just a really nice balance. Your next coaching assignment was Corowa Rutherglen at a point where the club had no A-grade side. How big a challenge was that and where did you start? Oh, gosh, that was a huge challenge because I, I thought I'd finished with Ovens and Murray and Sandra Dunn rang me. <laughs> she said, Lindy, I know you're, you said no, that you finished, but we need you. We need someone that's got some... Um, stature that will draw people back to the club because we are in dire strait and if we don't get a team on the court next year then the club want us to pull the netball all three netball teams out of the league and that broke my heart oh, I just thought no that we can't have that happen and I just started coaching Tory under eights in Melbourne <laughs> anyway I said, said to Tori look you're gonna have to put your netball on hold you're only eight it's plenty of time yet <laughs> um so I agreed to come up and coach Coral for three years and it was tough because, again, another network of friends. Uh, I knew a few people along the way, but um, we ran ads on in the paper. We put, you know, um, notices up on at the unis and the tapes. Uh, I rang all my friends that I knew that were travelling up and down, you know, that go to um, uni in Melbourne and travel home on weekends and, yeah, we eventually scraped together an A-grade side and the funny thing is, Steve, the very first game, you know, here we are, a bunch of players that just were dragged together. We had a few training sessions, the best we could really, given everyone, well, not everyone, probably four, five players lived in Melbourne. <laughs> so we won our very first game. Well, I'm sure they thought I was the next best thing since sliced bread. <laughs> But, there's always a but, we didn't win another game for the rest of the season, but that didn't matter. We had one win. <laughs> no, and the huge win was that we managed to get a team on the on the court. So that was the huge win. We had a fun year and then that just sort of snowballed into the second year where then the B-grade players were ready to step up because, you know, they'd been training. I'd set some trainings for them and we'd have some Sunday sessions and, and wow, look at Coral now. You know, they're playing in grand finals and they're just they're just a powerhouse. When you see where they're playing at now, challenging for premierships, the fact they were so close to disappearing, really, if you hadn't got that A-grade side um, on the court, how much satisfaction does it give you to know that you played a role in helping keep that club alive and you know provide the platform for the girls to do what they're doing today and be competitive? Oh, I got goosebumps when you said that. (laughs) 
yeah, when I reflect back and think, wow, you know, and you don't do it for the status of it all. You just do it out of the kindness of your heart and the fact that, you know, Coral might have to pull out a competition. That broke my heart. So, okay, Tori, we're going up and down that highway for another three years. But then Beck Didier, she took over after me. So she sort of was assistant coach there for the last couple of years and then she took over and she did an amazing job. And then Georgie, Georgie Bruce, she's now um, coaching and she's done a wonderful job. But to see those young girls come through and then it creates excitement and girls want to play at the club because, you know, you're becoming a bit more successful, you're winning games, you know, having some fun. Um, and not only that, there's two girls that I probably need to mention, um, Kath and Ruby Spark, who came through when I was there, uh, amazing young athletes. Now, now this is if I hadn't come to the club, Coral would have had to pull out of the comp. So these two girls that were living out on the farm with their parents and, you know, playing really bush netty, um, they wouldn't have got given the opportunity they come along, play at Coral with me, stayed there with Beck, you know, amazing young athletes, and now they've both got drafted to play AFLW with Brisbane Lions. So good on them for, you know, they're very, very driven young ladies and very they've got a real professional approach um, and I stay in contact with them too, um, which is lovely. So, you know, there's, there's two opportunities. There's others too that have gone on and done stuff. They say you're a long time retired. How did you know when it was time to hang the dress up and call time on the netball career? When I finished at Corowa, I'd met um, my now partner, Gary, and it's just I think it was just a sign of the times that we started um, seeing each other and doing the um, holiday thing where we'd go and water ski and, you know, spend a lot of more time with the kids. So it was perfect timing. I did my 15 years with Ovens and Murray and then, you know, sort of drifted out. Um, then I came back and did Myrtleford for one year. Um, they were just desperate for help with um, a coach. Uh, what's, uh, sorry, Bridget. Bridget was coaching, but she'd never coached before. So they wanted someone just to help, you know, um, guide her along. So I went back and did that one year. That was that was fun. But I do miss it. I really, really miss it. But I still play. I still play up here dom- domestically. Um, but I'm more into just my general health and wellness now. I, I'm a regular gym goer. It's part of my lifestyle. I'm active every day and, yeah, just trying to keep fit, healthy and happy. You've talked a little bit about your spiritual journey. Can you just explain that a little bit more for people and the, the significance of wellness in your life? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm not a fan of tattoos, right, <laughs> especially on girls. I don't mind them on the guys. <laughs> but... Back in when I turned 50, whether they had a midlife crisis, no, I don't know. But I just had this, I don't know where my life was at, where there must have been a lot of outside noise and I just felt that I was doing my spiritual stuff and I felt the need to get this tattoo on my inner forearm that I could see every day and be a constant reminder. So I got this inner piece with a nice little butterfly at the end above it so to me, it was a constant reminder of if anyone out there listening to this, if you can find your inner peace and be happy and content with that, then the outside noise is much more manageable. Um, 
and oh, trust me, it's helped me through life, um, you know, whether it be with family or work or, you know, situations happen and you just learn to be able to internalise it and then take a deep breath and, and, and not take anything personal because we never know what the other person's going through or people are going through in their lives and you don't take it personally, you just take a deep breath and you respond you don't react you respond back you know and just all that kind of stuff self-development stuff that I've learned over the years and I tell you what by god it's helped me <laughs> um and and people feel that you know people that meet me I'm not patting myself on the back here you know I have a genuine knowing that I have got that beautiful vibe that people want to be around me and and you and once you hit that point in your spiritual level you get it you get that and and you're happy to be alive you know you're grateful for everything you've got in your life you don't need for anything um you know it's all about giving and oh, it's just a, it's a beautiful beautiful place to be in your life to go down in the history books as the first netballer to be inducted into the O&M Hall of Fame what did that mean oh yeah that was that was amazing I you won't believe it. I was actually at a funeral when I got the phone call and we just left the church and we're heading to the cemetery and I got this call from Mothers and Murray and I thought, oh, that's weird, I'll grab it because, you know, I don't normally hear from the general manager. <laughs> oh, I think it was Anyway, um, yeah, he said, oh, how's your day? And I said, oh, okay. Little did he know I'd just come from a funeral. So I was my emotions were running high. So anyway, he told me that they were going to induct me into the Hall of Fame and congratulations and, you know, did his spiel and I burst into tears and he goes, are you all right? You know, that's, that's you should be happy. And I go, I know, but I'm at a funeral. And, I, <laughs> and it just was such mixed emotions, you know. We just lost someone close to the family and then here we are, I'm supposed to be excited about you know, what I'd done for netball and the community. And so I just I kind of couldn't really grasp it head on like I would have if I just was the normal. Anyway, so that was, no, it was good. It was very, um yeah, very honourable, that's for sure. And to have my whole family there on the night was amazing. Mum and Dad obviously weren't there. They're both past, but they would be, they would have been looking down going, you go, girl, you deserve that because mum knows how much I gave up to, you know, come up and down that highway. And my older two children, they were involved in the earlier days, up and down that Hume Highway in the car, fighting in the back. And, you know, we had some good quality time in the car. And then, of course, Tori, she was in the second half of that. <laughs> so, um, no, it was, it was very, very honourable. And I just... I'm just so blessed that Amzamari became like a family to me. You know, I can go back there now and I just feel still part of it. But, um, yeah, no, it was very a lovely, lovely night, that's for sure. And completely deserved, absolutely. Um, I think the conversation we've had, which only scratches the surface of your career in netball, speaks volumes for that. So, Lindy, thank you for everything that you've given the sporting community in our part of the world and thank you for coming on the podcast to talk about it as well we really appreciate it no thank you thank you for having me steve i've enjoyed it
That's all for now. Thanks for listening. To keep up to date with all the latest sports news, like us on Facebook at Border Mail Sport.